This is Again for the First Time with your host, Darren Redmond. Everybody, I want to thank you again for coming on here today for the next edition, the next episode of Again for the First Time podcast. This episode is brought to you by Gumper's Hockey Shop. It's located on 2473 North Marks Avenue in Fresno, California. But I want to note to everyone that they deliver worldwide. And while it's a wonderful hockey shop, they're really known right now for the uniforms, attire, team wear, and they'll ship anywhere. So if you want to get it done at a very good price, a lot of shipping difficulties these days, they're able to get it out to you, fine quality. A lot of the local teams, a lot of the national teams, some teams up in Minnesota, teams up in, up in Illinois, teams on the East Coast, all use Gumper's Hockey Shop for their team attire and for their fans. So Gumper's Hop, Hockey Shop and the phone number is 559-276-7825. Remember, that's Gumper's Hockey Shop, 2473 North Marks Avenue, 559-276-7825. You know, every episode that I do here on the Again for the First Time podcast, I really enjoy who our guests are. But sometimes we talk about very deep, sometimes depressing topics, and they have to get out there. But every once in a while, I get to sit with somebody uh, and uh, talk film, talk sports, talk nonsense, like two knuckleheads. And I am so happy today to have as my guest, Hugh McStay. How are you, Hugh? I'm very well, thanks, Darren. Listen, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always great, isn't it, to just uh, have a bit of time to chat about movies and kind of get into the weeds of that. So, yeah, no, I'm very, very excited to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know who Hugh is, whoa, how dare you not know? Let me tell you, he's a horror <laughs> writer. He's got a brand new kick-ass podcast coming up, him and his partner, um, and they're going to talk about vampires. We'll get into that, the whole vampire genre. Uh, I'm really interested in that. I'm going to immediately put it on my must-listen list. And uh, he's, like I said, he's a horror writer for the London Horror Society, Human Magazine, Thuggish Itch, Devilish and Theme Park, Madness Heart Press, Blood Moon Rising, on and on and on. Um, I, I got to know him through the Twitterverse, which I absolutely love. Um, if you notice, he's the one without an accent, even though I'm in California. I have the Brooklyn accent, so I just butcher every word known the man but that's a good thing but but here's the question I'm, I'm getting i'm getting people writing me and right now they're going what makes the man so angry as a scotsman how did you come up with that twitter handle right so that's it uh, that's quite an interesting one because that goes back to many many years ago when i used to uh really be into professional wrestling Mm -hmm. um, I, was like, I mean, I still kind of keep an eye on it from time to time, but I've drifted away from it over the years because, well, let's be honest, uh, Darren, I just don't have the hours in my week to watch mm -hmm. like six hours of wrestling. So try, trying to keep up with it is a bit much. So yeah, the, the Angry Scotsman thing was when I first began writing, um, there was a couple of different uh, websites where I would write under a pseudonym uh, when you were writing about re uh, pro wrestling. And uh, the pseudonym that I had was uh, the Angry Scotsman. So I would do like a, a weekly wrestling column uh, talking about what was good that week, what I was interested in. Uh, and yeah, when it came to Twitter, I just uh, I kind of adopted the moniker and took it with me. So yeah, it's, it's, it, I promise I'm not all that angry. I'm a, a fairly reasonable person most of the time, I think. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, I got to tell you, I, I, at first of all, it's a great, it's, it's, it's a great uh, moniker to have. Because people say, is he kidding? Maybe not. You know, just people be a little careful around you, um, which, which I, I think is a good thing. 
So, you know, you, first off, you mentioned wrestling. Let's talk about that. Um, your mm. favorite wrestler of all time and your favorite tag team uh, team of all time and why? Right, okay. That, that, that's a, it's an easy one. Of all time, it's uh, Bret Hart. Bret Hart's my oh, guy. Um, I remember, grow, yeah, Bret the Hitman Hart. Growing up as, as a kid in Glasgow, um, you know, pro wrestling, we, we, we didn't get to see it as, as it's not as red, it wasn't as readily available for us uh, as it was in the States and in Canada. Um, so we would uh, would only get it if we had certain subscription TV packages. So um, I kind of, I, I saw what I could as a kid, but Bret Hart was always the guy that absolutely uh, spoke to me as a, as a personality and uh, as a performer as well. Um, I'm, I'm much more a fan of the sort of the technical wrestling aspect. And, you know, I, I, I don't think there are many wrestlers uh, of the last 25, 30 years who are as proficient as him. You know, it's like his whole thing was always, you know, we're in a job here where the aim is to not hurt your opponent, but make it look like you're hurting them. Um, And I think wrestling's kind of going through the looking glass a little bit. And now it seems to be, well, you know, you are going to get hurt a bit here. You just have to be tough enough to take it, Um, which which is fine. You know, it's a completely different way of looking at it, I suppose. But yeah, Bret Hart was my guy growing up. Absolutely adored him. And uh, in terms of tag teams, that's that's a really tricky one. Um, if I'm honest with you, again, I, I come from that era where it's like, I've got to go with something like maybe the Rockers, you know, Shawn Michaels and Mark, sure. Martin Gennetti. Martin Gennetti, yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, he, get, he usually doesn't get any love. Most people remember Shawn oh, Michaels, no. but, he, but, oh, but yeah, Gennetti oh, Sean, doesn't get the love he should. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And John Michaels obviously went on to become one of the sort of like the big icons of the, the WWE in the sort of in the 90s and early 2000s. But um, I mean, obviously, Marty Jannetty had his personal strife and problems, which curtailed his abilities. But whenever he was in the ring, I mean, that guy was like a, a five star classic waiting to happen, you know. Uh, and he was one of those wrestlers as well who you could put in the ring with pretty much anyone and he's going to get a decent match out of them. So, yeah, no, Marty Jannetty's a, a, a cracking talent. But I think for me, it was just, you know, the Rockers were so. I mean, when I was watching that at the time, I must have been about maybe nine, ten years old, you know, mm-hmm. and like I absolutely just loved how colourful they were, how exciting they were, and they just seemed sort of like new and cool. And then obviously you get the the famous barbershop uh, breakup between the two, which became this iconic thing in wrestling. And oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, when 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 I think back, like as as a kid, that, that those were my absolute heroes growing up. So mine, because I'm older than dirt, right? We know this, right? I wrote. A, I used to ride a dinosaur to school, you know. So I'll start with my tag team. My favorite tag team was Chief J Strongbow and Billy White Wolf. Most people don't even oh, remember wow. who that is, and it was always that sort of pre Hulk Hogan thing, where one of the two is getting they're just getting the snot kicked out of them, and all of a sudden they get hit <laughs> one more time and they make that face like, "Uh oh, now I'm angry." And yeah. then, you know, <laughs> just stuff would happen. Uh, so that would be my tag team. And it's interesting also, you mentioned about uh, the technical skill. I was always a Bruno Sammartino guy for that reason. Oh, Bruno, yeah. You know, I liked the technical things. And, and it seemed to me that Andre the Giant, who died way too young, as we know, you know, later in life, mm. he's still wrestling and he couldn't do much, uh, which was fine because we loved him. He's such an icon of, of wrestling. But he just kind of stood there, and you get some of that today. I um, mean, and and um, where it's it's almost too much. Of, you know, put on some technical skill, like you know, like you mentioned, mm, Hitman yeah. Hart had that. I want to see the show, um, and because yeah, I mean, I'm go- sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree with what you're saying in terms of like the, the modern uh, modern day wrestling. It's like it's why I kind of would gravitate to guys like um, Brian Danielson and mm-hmm. CM Punk and guys like that because. 
you know, you're, whilst you're enjoying the the ludicrous over the top storylines and you know the you know the, the storytelling in the ring, I, I I want to know that these guys are proficient at you know at what they're doing and like guys like that were where I would always gravitate because I like to see as you said you like to see the the mechanics of what's going on. Like, tell me tell me that story in the ring. Show me that. Show me how that works. And guys like uh, Bret Hart were kind of the um, well for me anyway. I'm sure there are wrestlers before that, but for me Bret Hart was the guy who kind of opened my eyes to the fact that pro wrestling was about more than just you know the uh the pyro and the you know the exciting promos and stuff that you know the the storytelling in the ring was just as important as the storytelling outside well absolutely hitman was one of these guys that you could you know uh, put in the in the doctor who phone booth anytime and pop out in any genre of wrestling any decade and he yeah. could be part of that show and do it well he respects the game he respected the game um an absolute true icon so absolutely i got some weird questions for you that, that, that i'd love to talk to first how did you develop your interest in horror and mm -hmm. um is there a specific kind of horror that you that you gravitate to and as a kid were you into horror films give me the whole thing yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, again, I think this is having spoken to a lot of people for the podcast that myself and uh, Dan Owen are putting together. Um, I, it, I think my sort of horror roots are very similar to a lot of kids who grew up in the sort of uh, mid 80s and early 90s where our parents didn't really know what we were watching, you know, um, they would they would allow us to rent uh, whatever we wanted from the video store. Um, and for me, every weekend it was a Nightmare on Elm Street. It was Friday the Thirteenth. It was Salem's Lot. It was uh, Reanimator. It was you know Reanimator. Oh, great, 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 great <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everybody I, has to see Reanimator. That's all I'm saying. Hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, that's one of those films I would recommend to even non-horror fans because it's so much fun. You know, out with all the crazy sort of Lovecraftian nonsense that's going on, it's just such a fun watch. You know, and it still stands up well today. Um, but yeah, I mean, for, for me, it was uh, I was just I was always attracted because my my granddad um, was uh, was a big horror fan, and when I, whenever I would spend the night at his house, I mean, I'd spend the night at his house maybe once or twice a month, uh, sleep over with him, and my grandmother. And he would just put on these crazy movies for me to watch. And like my mom and dad had no problems with it. I think if I was if I was one of those kids who was maybe a little bit more sensitive to it, because, you know, some kids are, um, you know, and if I had nightmares or whatever, it may have been an issue. But it wasn't. I, I absolutely loved it. And then from there, um, my, my love kind of blossomed because my dad was a big fan of Stephen King, uh, more as, a, as an author than, you know, than the, the adaptations. Yeah, and my dad we're going to talk about that, actually. No, okay, okay. Um, as as I was growing up, my, my dad always had a Stephen King book on the go. Like he was always reading something, and uh, yeah, he encouraged me. I mean, from a young age, I'd always shown a real interest in uh, reading. Like you know, much more. I was going to say advanced, but that sounds really sort of like snobbish. I don't mean it like that. I just mean I wasn't really interested in the school curriculum as much as I was interested in the sort of the more adult things that my you know that I had access to at home. So, uh, yeah, my, again, my earliest memories and like uh, from like maybe nine, ten years old are reading books like It, Salem's Lot, um, Carrie, you know, like I, I kind of I've, I've gone through King's entire back catalogue over the years. And but most of them I, I discovered at a really young age. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that just really influenced what I wanted to do as a writer. Um, so, I mean, I went to I went to college and uh, studied journalism. 
and I kind of, you know, kept my hand in that over the years. It wasn't really the, the job that I was desperate to do, but kind of helped spring on, uh, spur on my uh, love for writing. And when I eventually had the time to focus on it, um, yeah, short horror stories has been has been my bread and butter for the last maybe five or six years. Um, that combined with um, my job at the London Horror Society, where I get to um, you know, I can get a look at new horror movies to do film reviews for. We get to speak to directors and uh, actors and writers who've maybe been a part of those movies. So yeah, I mean, like I think from a young age I was destined to, to land in this field somewhere, uh, and I'm very grateful uh, that you know that I'm in the position that I'm in and that I've had a not a huge amount of success, but a more, I would say a moderate amount of success with my writing. And yeah, so I mean that, that's kind of, that's kind of the, my backstory when it comes to my, my sort of horror origins. Well, that's great. And, and because it doesn't just happen, right? I mean, we mm. don't really, like, for example, without getting all metaphysical, you know, every time you see a horror film, my opinion is you're probably there with your grandfather somehow, some way. Because, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's how that develops. Um, it's interesting. So here's my thing with Stephen King, for example, just mm. throw it out there. Um, his stuff, of course, is uh, well known and famous and but I find it interesting that his novellas that are not horror related seem to do better when they uh, are um, put on the big screen than his typical mm. horror stuff. Like for example, he was not very happy with the way The Shining came as a film. He, he's made that public. Mm. But if you look at things like Shawshank Redemption uh, mm -hmm. and you look at Stand By Me, how amazingly yeah. popular they were. And those were two of his novellas that were not horror specific. I mean, Stand By Me had the dead body in a book, but that really wasn't the, the, the main main focus of the movie. Yeah. Um, talk about that a little bit, because he seems to yeah. be, when it comes to movies, um, those are what seem to stand out more than his horror. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, isn't it, the way that some things um, maybe translate a little bit better to the big screen. So, I mean, I, I think... To have, an, to have an understanding of that, I think you need to think about Stephen King as a writer going back to his, his roots. And I mean, Stephen King never set out to become a horror writer. Um, the the short horror stories that he would sell to, you know, like Hustler and Playboy magazine and Penthouse, all these places. That I mean, that was done out of necessity to help pay his bills. Yeah. You know, he knew you knew he was a talent, and he knew he could get these things published and make a couple of extra hundred dollars a month to you know to keep the lights on. But he never really envisaged that he the horror would be where he ended up. And uh, you know, there's the famous story, which I'm, I'm sure you know, where um, after finishing the first draft of Carrie, um, he just threw it in the bin, hated it, he thought it was terrible, and he said that his wife kind of dug it out of the trash and read it and encouraged him, no, no, that, you know, you have something here, you need to pursue this. And of course, that that's the book that went on to, you know, I think the first he said that the check he got for that was like a hundred thousand dollars when it went into paperback and. You know that that kind of changed his entire life. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I think at the heart of Stephen King that there's a there's a frustrated um, literary writer, and but I think a lot of that bleeds into his horror fiction as well because I I actually do think I think he gets a bit of a hard time from the critics at times. Um, not so much now, but I think when he certainly in the the seventies and eighties. I know there was a kind of snobbery about Stephen King, you know. I think he was dis I think one critic memorably described him as like the um, the literary equivalent of a Big Mac and Coke, and Stephen King kind of rebelled against that. And, and I agree with that. His resistance was as well. You know, sometimes people want a Big Mac and a Coke. There's nothing yes. wrong with that. Yeah, and absolutely. So, yeah, 
So, I mean, I've got a lot of respect for him absolutely standing his ground and not back, you know, not trying to back away from it. And so when it comes to uh, translating his work uh, from the screen, or oh, sorry, from the, the book to the screen, I, I think that, I think his books work very well in your head. Um, there's a lot of big imagery going on and big ideas that's hard to convey on the screen. I think memorably, without getting into too many spoilers, because I don't want to ruin anything from any, any of your listeners, uh, but <clears throat> it is the, the biggest one I always think of. The final act of it has this sort of weird, crazy metaphysical battle between uh, the kids and the creature that's going on in some sort of weird nether realm between two worlds and, you know, those ancient Lovecraftian monsters and, you know, that doesn't that doesn't transcribe very well to the screen, which is why you always get a sort of softened version in both, yes. uh, softened ending in both versions, which doesn't quite hit the mark for me. Well, things like The Body, which went on to become Stand By Me, or as you said, The Shawshank Redemption, or even, I would argue, The Green Mile, even though there sure. is a lot oh, of yeah. supernatural stuff going on there. I think they, they work better because he's grounding that in as real a world as, as is possible. And he's obviously drawing on his own personal histories for a lot of that. And that is much easier to kind of convey. And that is much easier to put up on the big screen because they're a bit more linear. And the themes that are going on, I think, are easier to um, for a screenwriter to adapt. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the heart of it, to be honest, Darren. Um, I, I think there may be people more eloquent than me that can uh, dig it apart a little bit better. But for me, it always comes down to that, the idea that, you know, those um, those novellas that you discussed are, are much more human. And the stories are much more, are much easier to relate to, I think, for an audience, um, because obviously you're you're stripping out all of the the supernatural and the fantastical, and you're focusing on really intimate character studies or really touching, um, you know, uh, rites of passage uh, stories. And yeah, I mean, as a writer, his I think he has an amazing amount of range, um, but he just gets unfairly maligned as oh yeah, the horror guy. When you know, if I think if you were to dig into his work, you'd find a lot of merit there. Oh no, I think you're absolutely right, and it's interesting because a couple of things I'll talk about now. So, for example, mm. I just went to see uh, where the Crawdads sing, oh. and it's very interesting because you have some of these critics who just panned it, gave it like a thirty-three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, mm. but yet. You have these people who are not critics who have given it like 96, 98%. And I saw the movie, you know, you read the book, you see, and I think it was spot on. I, wonderful mm -hmm. movie. Similar sort of reaction from this wonderful book that was made into a movie about eight years ago um, called The Book Thief, which was just mm -hmm. an amazing book. And by the way, was narrated by death. Most people don't realize that, that the book <laughs> and the film is narrated by death. Um, and which is kind of an interesting thing as well. Yeah. Um, but so I, th I think you're spot on that because I like with, with, with the Crow Dad Sing, I thought it was really, really good. It was great. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I speak as a critic here, but I mean, even I get a bit skeptical sometimes about uh, films that are overwhelmingly panned. You know, it's like that, that's almost enough to kind of get my back up and make me go see it. You know, when you hear that, you know, that there's critic after critic lining up to give a film a kicking because. I mean, I've always been of the opinion, it's it's just the opinion of the critic. You know, that's the way I always look at it. It's like, well, you know, it it doesn't ultimately mean anything. I would like to think that someone would read one of my film reviews and, you know, they would get a feel for what the film is. They might not agree with my overall what, assessment of it, and that's absolutely fine. But I think you have to be honest with your with your readers when you're doing a, a, a review. 
And I think there's a lot of critics who are more interested in writing a scathing review than writing an accurate one, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, and I get it, especially when we talk about you got to keep the lights on and I get, you want to build a following. You, even if it's a negative reaction, you want to get reaction. We all get that. You know, I mean, uh, at least I do. But yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I, I, for me, it, it's difficult because, I mean, when I started working for the London Horror Society as, as a critic, I mean, a lot of the films we get that are like, you know, they're indie movies and they're put together with a lot of heart and yes. a lot of soul and a lot of, you can feel the passion in the film, even when the film doesn't quite hang together due to you know, something as simple as a budgetary constraint or time constraints in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, resources that they have to put it together. And I just think it would be a dereliction on my part to give those films a hard time because they are a bit rough around the edges or there are certain problems with them. And so, well, I'll always be honest as a critic, when it comes to independent films, I do go out of my way to kind of, um, I'll never say anything in, in my review that I don't believe, but I also will make sure that, you know, I'm not I'm sticking the boot in like so many would do, because I just think it, you know, I know how much effort goes into making a movie. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But there's no reason to absolutely castigate and, you know, really uh, damage the people who the creative forces behind it um but yeah i mean i think it's it, there's, there's a wide gamut when it comes to reviews i think you have to be aware of the reviewer sometimes you know it's like you know is there someone who's looking to kind of make a name for himself or you know to build a following or is it someone coming at it from a place of honesty it's yeah it's, it's, it's a tricky minefield to kind of to negotiate I hear you say that I'm, I'm sort of inside my head applauding because i had on my my podcast um, the uh, people who uh, created Tremendous Pictures and Travis Clough said one time, he's one of the two people who made it, um, mm. that I will never tell anybody that their movie is horrible because mm -hmm. you, there's so much work that goes into it. There's ways of saying that it's not for me or, you know, that did not resonate, resonate to me, but just mm -hmm. to like stroke of the pen, say, this stinks, this is horrible, that, the process is so tough. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. And everything they have to do in terms of collecting of the money and, and the script and the, and the writing and finding the right people. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. It, it's, it's too like easy to, to tear something down, you know, and, and I just think, I think it's, it's, um, it's an easy crutch for many critics, like you said, who are just really more interested in getting the name out there than actually critiquing the film. I mean, I, I, I won't name the movie or the director, but I did a review about a year about a year ago, uh, and I just didn't enjoy the film. There was or there was there were sections of it that I didn't enjoy, and my review went up on on the website. And then I was offered an interview with the director as well, so I spoke to the director. And at the end of the interview, he was lovely. And at the end of the interview, he said, "Listen, I read your review, and you know, inside my chest, my heart just stopped." I was like, "Oh, right. oh, oh, oh dear." And it was brilliant. We had a brilliant conversation off the record for about another 15, right. 20 minutes about the nature of the film. And he was kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with the point you made about certain scenes that felt unfinished and felt, he said, that's because they were. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we ran out of money. And, and, but yes. it was lovely. And uh, the, the attitude he took to it as well was he was not grateful. That's the wrong way. But, but you broke up there again. Can you hear me? he was i think i think he was yeah sorry can you hear me okay yes yeah go ahead continue yeah. 
sorry. Um, yeah, so I think he was appreciative that I didn't, you know, like absolutely cut his movie to ribbons. But I was still quite honest about my my stance on it. So yeah, I mean that that was a, that was a nice eye opener for me to actually get that feedback from um, a creative person involved in the movies. And you know, as as a critic, as you are, I mean, it's so important that people, from my, in my opinion, understand because I talk to critics like yourself. I talk to movie makers, producers, actors, mm-hmm. um, and um, like one of my one of my favorite directors. Um, is John Swap. I don't know if you've seen any of his work, but uh, mm. um, it's go ahead. Ida Red is a great movie. Um, and and uh, you know, if you see this movie called Body Brokers, there's been nothing in the last five years on the fentanyl uh, issue and, and overdosing and drugs and, and, and drug rehabilitation. Mm. Yeah. So you talk to these people and off the record and, and talk a little bit about this. You want to be true to who you are. You want to be true to your ability to critique, but yet you don't want to be hurtful. Yet you want people to trust you. People don't realize that's a fine line. And and it's not an easy place for people to stay in, and you're able to do very well. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, this goes right back to the very first piece of work I ever did for the website where um, the the gentleman who owns the website, runs the website, um, had sent me over a movie to ask me if I wanted to review it. And it was, again, it was an independent movie. And he said, listen, it's a little bit rough around the edges. I don't want you to lie, but like, if you could just type something up and let me, let me know what you think about it. And so we can get it out. So I was like, yeah, well, okay, that's fine. And I didn't realize at the time that, that he was kind of like, I think he was kind of testing me to see, you know, yeah. what I was, what I was going to come up with. And was. I, yeah. And, and when I sent the review off, um, I said, listen, I've been honest and there's not a single line of this review that I don't believe I've been honest about my opinion and but similarly it'll probably read as, as fairly uh, ambivalent about it so he read it back and he came back to me he's like yeah I said that that's what we're looking for what you know we, we need for this website in particular I mean don't get me wrong we have grown a lot over the years the website and we've, we've now got access to a lot of um, the bigger platforms like Shudder have been very good to us with uh, screeners for new movies uh, we've had a couple of things from Universal you know the website is growing quite nicely but when we started it was very much indie filmmakers sending us things and what, what they were looking for was a, a film critic who was going to be insightful, honest, but not scathing. And so that, that, was, that was kind of at the forefront of my mind. And I've, and I've maintained that, Darren, all the way through my writing uh, for the website. And I kind of apply that to mostly any film that I'm reviewing. It's like, I'm going to be honest, but I'm not going to be needlessly cruel for the sake of it. Because there's enough of that out there. There's enough people out there you know, doing things like that. And I don't want to just join those ranks. And also, if I'm brutally honest... I'm a writer of horror stories and right. I've had, I've read reviews of my work that I've been happy with, unhappy with, confused by. So, so I know what it's like to be on the other side as well. So yeah, I think that that creates a, it creates a really interesting mindset because um, there was, just very quickly, there was there was a, a, a short story that I've been trying to publish for about a year and a half, two years, and I'd sent it to a couple of different places and received rejections. And you know, that's the kind of the life of the writer, isn't it? It's like you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to get more rejections than you're going to get acceptances. And you just have to kind of have a thick skin, which is fine. But there, there was one uh, place that rejected my story, and then uh, sent me an email saying, "Listen, we we liked it, but we think it needs to have a few changes." Um, if you'd like to buy this book from us that talks about the best way to write a short story, maybe that could help you with yours. And I was just thinking, 
oh, you know, you, you know, by this point I was reasonably, you know, experienced. And so I knew well enough to just kind of shake my head, but it made me think, well, what if that was an inexperienced writer and that was the first thing they got back and, right. you know, there's someone trying to scam them into buying their, exactly. you know, their self-help book. It was so insulting. And then of course, to my event, I'm very proud of this. Like that story, I then got accepted at the next place I sent it without any edits because it's like I believed in the story that I'd written. Um, but yeah, some you have to be aware that some people just come at things with an agenda, don't they? And you just have to kind of have your eyes open for that sometimes. Oh, all the time, and, and uh, it happens. And unfortunately, there's a lot of there's a lot of scammers out there, and mm. they like to get the weak, the vulnerable, the people who are just starting out. Um, and, and, and that's what that's what that is, right? I mean, and it's, it's mm. terrible. So here's something I wanted to ask you before we kind of move away from Stephen King. So, mm. and I mean this with 100% sincerity. I'm sitting in the movie theater about three weeks ago, and I thought of you, and I because by that time we thought of, we, we already had a discussion that we had this upcoming podcast recording. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching, I like to go to the theaters to see my movies. Though I do sometimes yeah. see them in my house, I prefer going to theater because that's what they're made for, in my opinion. And again, it goes back to, um, you know, self-comfort. When I was a kid, I used to go uh, to the movie theaters and sit there all day and watch the same movie three or four times. And anyway, but I bring all that up because I'm watching The Black Phone. And, oh, yeah. and uh, I'd love to get your impressions of it. I really enjoyed it. And I'm saying, boy, this succeeds some places where it failed. You know, Stephen mm. King's this re- most recent one. And do you think the imagery of the yellow uh, raincoat, bike, raining, balloons, do you think that was a subtle nudge to it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, so that, that was a film um, I had the privilege of actually reviewing for the website, and I gave it a very glowing review. I, I absolutely loved it. I had such a great time with it. And, you know, it, because obviously the, it comes from a short story by uh, Joe Hill, uh, Stephen King's son, uh, which is so you can absolutely feel his yeah. father's um, hand on his shoulder guiding him. Yes. Um, I've read quite a lot of uh, Joe, Joe Hill's stories, and he's a, he's a very talented writer in his own right, but he does, it does feel like he's playing the same sort of uh, wheelhouse as his dad, which is absolutely fine, you know, the, oh, yeah. of course you're going to be inspired by. I mean, Craig, yeah, I, I would look at pretty much any of my short stories and you could probably find things that are, you know, inspired by Stephen King or, or like, not, uh, influenced by. So, yeah, that, that story comes from uh, Stephen King's son, but also Scott Derrickson, the, the director of that film, is I think he's one of the best horror directors working today. Um, he is just... Everything he turns his hand to, I think, has been excellent so far. Even, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I had, uh, as a kid growing up, big comic book fan. Uh, and I think that's a tremendous uh, entry in the MCU because there's just so many interesting things going on in that film and the imagery is gorgeous. And yeah, the, the Black Phone is, is one of those, one of the best horror films I've seen this year, I think. Um, in terms of populist horror films as well, I don't think there's been a better one for many years um, because it's become a massive hit. I think it's brought in something like $80 million, um, which for a horror film is oh, just yeah. absurd. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I desperately hope it's a one and done. It doesn't feel like one that needs a sequel, but you know what studios can be like when they get a hit on their hands. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the relationship between the central uh, kids in that film is brilliant. Between... Um, forget the character's name but you know the little boy who's kidnapped and his sister yes. 
is so well realized. Oh, how so well wonderful written. of an actress was that sister? I mean, oh. everybody acted great, but she was. Yeah. Was, she almost stole the movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it's. It, I mean, before even before the the boy is kidnapped. I mean, the uh, the way in which Derrickson kind of frames a lot of the sort of the the, the horribly casual abuse that, that goes on in their household. Yes. Um. Is is utterly heartbreaking. I mean, like the, the first, It's also shocking as well. I found because it is so stark and real. And I read interviews with Derrickson at the time, and he talked about how there's a lot of his childhood in this film, and you know, there's a lot of his influence by kind of his his um his time at home and. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can feel that in the movie. It feels very personal whilst telling this sort of big fantastical tale at its heart. And um, Ethan Hawke is, I mean, I, I love Ethan Hawke in oh, pretty too. much anything. Yeah, it's like, he's what—he's one of those actors that I don't know if, if, if I'm like, if you're like me, Darren, he's one of those actors when I see his name, it's like, yeah, I'm going to watch that. Like, even if I have yeah. no interest in the film, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give this some time because he always gives an interesting performance in everything he does. And this performance is just, Oh, it's it's tremendous. It's so physical and um, it's almost alien. Like his movements and his tone of voice, and and then you've got that horrifying mask that you know that is interchangeable throughout the film. And yeah, that's a, that's a film I could wax lyrical about for the rest, for the next hour and a half. Uh, a really really tremendous piece of work. It's so interesting because the subtleness. And we we're not giving anything away here. The, the mm. subtleness, where I thought his acting was wonderful and, and everything else. In the, but remember when he was sitting in the kitchen just waiting, I won't say what mm. for what. It was so yeah, creepy. Yeah. It was so creepy and so well done and looked so real. And sometimes, mm-hmm. and you mentioned this um, w- w- with the director um, of, of the movie, and, and you mentioned this kind of a little bit uh, with some of the other stuff you're talking about. Less really is more. Sometimes, oh yeah, when, yeah. The, when the mind you the mind has these images. When you see that person, Ethan Hawke in that case, sitting there with what he was, you know, sitting there with waiting, and um, your mind goes to very dark places. And I think sometimes people ruin that moment by trying to explain what's going on, and they they try to create it. You know, let the mind mm. do it. The mind is a better. Uh, director producer than that one director because what could be scary to me you know a divorced household uh, talking about myself in real, real life you know father who went through alcoholism yeah. all that stuff that's what I see when I see that scene in the kitchen where you might see something else mm-hmm. which is just as scary to you yeah uh-huh. I couldn't agree more. It's um, you're right. The, the example of less is more is very prevalent in that movie. I actually, I watched a film earlier this week, Darren, that I recommend to you and your listeners, if, if that's the kind of horror that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just dropped on Shudder, I think yesterday, and it's called What Josiah Saw. Now, it stars uh, Robert Patrick um, and Nick Stahl would be the other sort of famous name that you would know from it. But it's just a, a wonderfully creepy insidious southern horror gothic tale um That's and again like. it, it's it's another example of that thing you're talking about where yeah well, well it's one of those films where like sometimes it doesn't feel like much is happening but there's a 10 points that when I was reviewing it, i said it, points, it genuinely feel a little bit nauseous because it's so oppressive 
but it it, it features some uh, really really interesting themes uh, about um, abuse and the the nature of uh, you know the nature of fate and yes. you know how much our, our fate is in our own hands. It's just honestly, I, I, when I finished watching it um, a couple of nights ago, um, I wanted to just put it on again, watch it again. That was one of those horror films where I just thought, well. I want to watch it again, knowing what I know. Well, having seen the whole film, I want to, I want to sit with it again and let it ruminate. And uh, so that, that's what I did before I wrote my review. That, and that's, yeah, that's cannot recommend it highly enough if you get a chance. Uh, what Josiah saw. Oh, I will watch it tonight. I mean, I'm, I'm just... Uh, oh, wow. That's what I really liked. I mean, that's for me. I mean, we'll kind of get more into what personally I like, uh, but that's the kind of stuff where... You know, you can go and say that resonates with me for some reason I don't like, and uh, mm. that that's kind of you know like real, you know. Um, so I want to just touch on something you mentioned with mm. your own writing. Recently, I had the pleasure of of uh, having as a guest on a podcast uh, international artist David Sandum. Uh, he's out of Norway and Sweden, and um, he talks about like like a big influence on him was Van Gogh. And then we talked about mm. how do we allow ourselves, if we're being honest, to be motivated by certain artists. So in your world, Hara, um, mm. but yet not be copying them, but understanding that there's parts of those people in us and we have to allow that to happen and to germinate. How do you go about saying, okay, this is a human stay kind of thing, but I know this sort of resonates with certain directors, certain influences. Talk to mm. me about your, your, your method of making sure that you're true to yourself with the honesty, honesty that you kind of have a background with others. Talk about that. So um, I, I, what I did when I began uh, writing was I kind of wrote just for myself for the longest time. I mean, it's only in the last five years that I've made any sort of conscious effort to become published. Uh, for many years, I was just kind of writing and writing and, you know, never really, I, I was never really happy with what I was doing, you know. Um, and the only people who would really see my my work would be uh, maybe my partners or, um, you know, just, you know, fa close family. It really wouldn't go much further than that. And then about five years ago, I genuinely felt like I had a breakthrough. I know it sounds like, like a really sort of pretentious thing to say, but that's how it felt like there was I wrote a story called The Power of Hate and I put it away in my drawer. That's kind of what I do. I write my story, stick it away in my drawer for maybe a month, don't look at it, and then come back to it with fresh eyes, see how I feel about it. And normally when I come back to it, I hate it. You know, you just think, oh God, who who wrote that? You know, it's dreadful. Um but I came back to this one and I, I read it and I just thought, uh, that's that's quite good actually. It's, it's still quite good. So yeah, and and so what I did then was I I just began to obviously you know second third draft polish it off and and I sent it off and it's the first story I'd ever sent off for publication, and it found a home right away. I was absolutely thrilled, really surprised, but very you know I was absolutely thrilled when it when it found a home, and then from there I started to you know you start to kind of look at what you're doing and you start to I mean I, I think. I'm most influenced by Stephen King and maybe Clive Barker. Mm -hmm. Again, nowhere near as talented as any of those two fine gentlemen. But certainly, you know, in terms of the, the amount of their fiction that I've read over the years, it bleeds into a lot of what I do. Um, but it wasn't until uh, I started getting feedback from people that you can kind of see 
well, actually, there's, there's other things going on in there that I wasn't really aware of. Um, I had someone write, uh, write to me after they read one of my stories to say, oh, yeah, no, it's got a really sort of weird Lovecraftian vibe going on. And I was just thinking, oh, does it? Oh, excellent. I didn't, didn't realise that that was there. But it kind of bleeds through, I think, when you're so immersed in, in the horror genre and you read so much stuff and you watch so many movies. I think these influences just come from everywhere. So, I mean, consciously, I think I'm aware of like King and Barker. And so I am always on guard for not repeating things that they've done. But then I, I do take things from them that, that absolutely I apply to my writing. Like um, I like to, I like my characters to be fleshed out, um, even in a short story, even if it's like maybe a paragraph or two that just tells you enough about the person you're reading about to care about them, whether they die or, you know, put, or put them in peril. And that comes from King. I mean, Christ, King will write, he writes these amazing characters who are maybe... They're, on, they're maybe only going to be there for like three or four pages. But by the time you get to the end of that fourth page where they're maybe killed off by some horrible monster, you feel that loss because he sketched such an interesting, quirky character and you, you get it, you know. And, and with Barker, um, he has this sort of rich vein of insidious, perverted horror that runs sort of like it's like an undercurrent of horror that runs through his work and you know, sort of, of filth and disease. And I, I definitely find that those themes affect a lot of my writing as well. And again, without, uh, without naming the stories, but there was one short story that I'd written and I, I loved it. And, um, you know, you know, I mean, sometimes you love, you love all your children, don't you? But you love more, some more than others. Yes. <laughs> so, so, but there was one short, short in particular that I loved and I sent it off and, got published and it was my best friend, uh, John, who, who read it after it had been published and said to me, uh, you know, you're the main character in this. Yeah. Uh, and, and genuinely, uh, Darren, I was completely kind of flabbergasted. Sure. <laughs> he's like, he's like you know that this is you, like this main character. And it took me, it took me a while to kind of reconcile with that because there were, I'd put things in that, into that story and into that character in particular that were quite, I think, quite personal, but I didn't realise that they were mine, if, if that right. makes sense. I'm not saying well, yes. silly. Um, and, and it took it took my, my the person in the uh, in the world who probably knows me best, you know, to kind of to cut through all of the, the the subtext and just bring it out as text and say, look, you you know that that is you, and like you've been very open about a lot of things there. And it, yeah, kind of caught me off guard. So I mean, I, I think well, you're always aware of the influences around you, and I think you always have to be careful as, as to not repeat or to. Rip off is the wrong word, but you know I think sometimes an homage can turn into um, an aping far too easily, and so I'm very careful about that. Uh, there are certainly some stories that I've written with another short story in mind. Like the, the, I wrote one um, about <laughs> this will sound really weird, but it, it, believe me, it worked on the page uh, about this uh, ancient evil cosmic buffalo uh, that, that came to torment the, this, this sort of um, gangster organization for various reasons. But I wrote that with a, a really famous Clive Barker short story in mind, because you know, that's got a, a similar overriding theme uh, running through it. But I always make sure that, you know, there are no there are no similar plot beats and the characters are all incredibly different. But yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but like I say, as long as you make sure that that, um, that homage or that sort of, um, you know, paying tribute doesn't become just straight copying or, or, or aping exactly what they're doing, because I think that just, it, it, you, it becomes sort of narratively and, um, artistically bankrupt at a certain point if, if that's all you're doing and and I think through doing that I think also I think ultimately I've kind of found my voice it's taken 
taking about maybe 10 years of writing and about five years of being published to kind of find that voice. But I think I think now my work feels of a piece. And I've had, I've had feedback from a few different um, editors who have reached out to me, you know, because what used to happen is I would, I would send my stories everywhere and you'd wait for months to hear if they'd been published. And whilst I still do that, I'll be very lucky that a group of maybe, I would say maybe three or four different editors keep me on sort of rotation now right, and whenever right. they have an whenever they have an anthology coming out um whilst they will put out a general sort of request for people to send stuff in they'll kind of email me directly and say listen we'd really love to have one of your stories if you've got something so that that's been lovely and so feedback from them has been great because they can tell they, they're able to tell me it's like no no you your stories have a, a distinct flavor and a distinct sort of like uh, authorial voice that's kind of coming through and i think that's that's the thing it takes the longest to find uh and so I'm, I'm really glad that I kind of have it and it's just a case of, you know, like tailoring it and uh, working on it and finessing it and really finding the stories that I want to tell, I think. Well, that's, that's, that's great. And, and I think part of, you know, it's, everything's process, right? And then yeah. you realize that, well, I see influences of so-and-so, in your case, Clyde Bacher, Stephen King. And then there's a maturity when you say, that's okay. And that's mm. okay. And, and you just can't replicate what they do. But, mm. but there's if, an understanding and an interest. It, it's like, for example, and it's not the same thing, but, but it may be close. You know, grandma made a beautiful lamb. And, and you're making lamb. Uh, you, you know, and, and you're taking some of what she did and you're changing a little bit. And it's still yours. You're the one who's yeah. making it. And it's, it's but you know, there, there are some things, and in my writing, for example, or, or what I do creatively with documentaries, mm-hmm. look, look, I, I've done a documentary recently on, on the fentanyl crisis, and look, there was a lot of Ken Burns in there, let's be honest, you know, mm. it's just the way that he, now the, the narration and the movement of, of the still pictures to look like the kind of moving and the different, you know, voices that we use for people, and, mm. and but yet it wasn't a replication, you know, so that's okay so yeah i, I mean I, I think the uh, one of the one of the most prolific and, and again most talented writer directors working today is uh, um, have you heard of mike flanagan yes yes yeah, so mike flanagan did um his big hits would be like doctor sleep um hush um uh, midnight hush mass uh, hunt, uh haunting of hill house so all, all for netflix so mm-hmm. i mean there, there's a guy who wears his stephen king heart on his sleeve you know right. and and, and he's, you know, he's he's adapted King a couple of times, but kind of his uh, his magnum opus was uh, was Midnight Mass on Netflix, which I adore. I think it's one well, of it's the very uh, very good. Very yeah, good. for for me that that's kind of the, that been the highlight of all those sort of like limited series Netflix horrors. I I, I love it, and I think a lot of what what Flanagan says in that film about his relationship with faith and his belief system, kind of almost uncannily mirrors my own and uh, the, the journey I kind of went on when it comes to my sort of like feelings about um, life after death and religion all that sort of stuff so I mean for, for me it, it felt quite uh, personal as well however that's a guy who openly admits that Midnight Mass is basically Salem's Lot on a small island I mean that's effectively what we get and there's nothing wrong with that because oh. we live in a post-modern world where yes. you know are, are there original ideas I mean I'm sure there will be every now and again but everything's kind of a a sort of slant on a previous take, isn't it, at this point? Yes. And yeah, the, the idea that, um, that that something can't be original because of that is, is, you know, is, is kind of vaguely absurd because 
I mean, I think you go back far enough and everything's a copy of something's a copy of something's a copy of something, you know, everything. I mean, you you even go back to Shakespeare and I'm pretty sure, I mean, Shakespeare had contemporaries and and other, um, you know, people that come before him who influenced the things that he would do. So, uh, yeah, I I, I, I don't have a a huge issue with that. And and I agree 100% with you. I think it's a real level of maturity to kind of, to understand that about your own work and understand that about your own, uh, whatever your artistic endeavour is. You know, as you said, if it's... um, if it's documentary filmmaking, if it's movie making, if it's podcasting, if it's writing, whatever it is, you know, there's someone came before you and, you know, it's okay to have been influenced by what they've done. So here's a weird thing, weird one for you. Um, mm. Before I, I kind of, well, let me go here. And then I was asking to talk about, uh, I'll do it now. Hugh Laurie, I wanted to ask about real quick. Mm. Hugh Laurie for me is a throwback to a genre of entertainer that is unfortunately sort of going away. And I use him obviously because, you know, he, you know he's, he's, he's from across the pond, quote unquote, as, as they like to stay here still. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he could be dramatic, comedic. He's a wonderful, you know, uh, musician. And mm. Do you find generally that we, as uh, are seeing so many people pigeonhole themselves in one genre? So whether it's it's horror, whether it's I just do movies, or I just do dance, or I just do music, and, and what's and the entertainer, and that's why I pick you, Laura, because I think he's brilliant as an actor, brilliant as a comedian, brilliant as uh, a musician, seems to be going away. Do you see that, or am I just? Um, no, no, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, like, I suppose what um, I th- I suppose what you would know is like a song and dance man, and you yeah, know, yes, like yes, you know that yeah. that that sort of era of, of entertain of entertainers is kind of disappearing. And if you notice how we we find it weird when when someone steps out of what we perceive to be their um, you know, their pigeonhole where they've been put. You know, like like you said, like Hugh Laurie is a great example. You know, like when you when I think initially when you see Hugh Laurie um, releasing like a jazz album or a blues album rather, sorry, and, and you know, and touring, uh, you know, playing music, there is a, an element or a segment of society and sort of like pop culture press in particular who look at that and go, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, why, why is he doing that? Like, you know, it's, it's, right. he, he should be off doing another season of House or a new drama or whatever. And yeah, I find that bizarre. Hugh Laurie's a great example, actually, because I'm a... I don't know about you, that I'm a huge fan of Blackadder. Do you, do you know that sitcom, the British sitcom? Yes, yes. Yeah. That's my I, I, That's my rabbit hole at night. What's one of them? <laughs> when I'm having a cigar and some whiskey alone in my backyard, there uh-huh. you go. Oh, perfect. Well, Blackadder is one of my all-time favourites. So much so that um, I've shown it to my uh, my 15-year-old daughter, and she absolutely loved it as well because it's you know it's one of those timeless programs. It's all about sort of the wordplay, as much as it's kind of like a satire about certain times and certain events. You know, it's, it's you know the the writing and dialogue is so clever and funny and well put together that I think you can appreciate it no matter you know which generation you, you hail from. There's a lot going on in it, but yeah, that's what I knew Hugh Laurie from. You know, like there's the guy who you know silly Prince George or. Uh, Lieutenant George from the fourth season, who's just this barking mad upper class lunatic. You know, every other every other line is something absurd and hilarious. And then, 
obviously had a great sketch show with uh, Stephen Fry called uh, right. A Little Bit of Fry and Laurie, which was, again, absolutely brilliant, a staple of my childhood growing up. And yeah, so it's great to see him kind of uh, get the acclaim and, and the, the, I think that he deserves because he's, he's a terrifically talented man. But just in, uh, come back to just what you're saying about the, the idea of, um, you know, of, of pushing yourself out of that and, and having people who have feet in multiple camps. Yeah, it does seem to be going away. But then I suppose you look at someone like, uh, like a modern example would be someone like, like J-Lo, who's still, mm-hmm. you know, got a, a yeah. fairly successful musical career, but she's also, you know, an Oscar-nominated actress and she's, you know, she still stars in different things. Or, in fact, you know, the most recent example, I suppose, would be uh, Lady Gaga, who sure. again yes. I mean, an incredibly talented uh singer songwriter who as it turns out is an incredibly talented actress as well you know Absolutely. um but, but yeah I, I do agree with you i mean that those are the exceptions aren't they that, rather than the rule um and it's funny that i had to kind of rack my brain to kind of think of that because yeah you're right it's it is a bit of a dying art and it becomes increasingly unusual to see it rather than just you know like part of the the sort of cultural lexicon or cultural zeitgeist it's very much is fading away i do agree oh yeah and by the way i mean she's been wonderful in, in everything that she's been in in terms of uh, cinematic but uh, mm. lady gaga is very very good in american horror story very good as we talked yeah, about yeah. Uh-huh. so i want to share ask you something because could you believe we're doing an hour already um <laughs> so i remember when i was a kid i saw this um uh, lecture and uh, i forget the details of it but it was sort of like the genre of vampires the genre of frankenstein the genre of werewolves sort of people had person now that you can go and enjoy all of them but if you had to defer to one or the other sort of talked a little bit about a person's personality um Mm. and so like Talk to me about, about the allure of the vampire movie. For example, for me, I got into the vampire um, late. I mean, I always enjoyed mm. the old, you know, you, you got to watch the old vampire movies. But I always thought that the uh, werewolf genre for me was interesting, sort of the duality uh, of, of mm-hmm. that. Um, and now I'm very big on uh, the zombie. I, I, I like those a lot. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the lore of the vampire uh, and just that whole the Frankenstein kind of people, the vampire people, the werewolf people. Mm. Talk about that. Well, I, again, for, for me, vampires is kind of the big thing for me uh, in horror. And that again, that comes from my childhood. Um, some of the earliest memories I have are, are things like Salem's Lot and again, watching them with my granddad. Mm. Um, so I kind of that that's it's kind of the both of those things are indelibly linked in my brain. You know, when I think of like happy, warm, fuzzy childhood memories, I think of the terrifying bald vampire from Salem's Law, which is probably, you know, probably should speak to a psychologist about that. That's probably not a healthy way to look at things. But um, so, yeah, for, for me, vampire, the, re- the reason vampires stuck and the reason that that's the kind of genre I would return to again and again is because there is such a, a wide sort of selection of vampire movie, you know, whereas I, I think zombies increasingly now are kind of become a little bit more fragmented and there are slightly different takes on the genre you know um you've got i mean i think there are some zombie films now where the zombies are kind of intelligent or you know i think danny boyle did his big reinvention in the 2000s when the 28 days later where they sort of reframed the, the zombie thing as, a, as, a, as like a viral outbreak um where you get the fast running zombies and so there has been an attempt to kind of uh, vary it a little bit 
but of all the sort of the movie monsters and or um or even folklore monsters, there are none that have the kind of the the breadth of the vampire genre. And doing this podcast um that, that starts at the end of August um, with my co-host Dan Owen, uh, vampire videos has been so much fun because we have watched films that are art house classics. We've watched films that are lunatic zany 80s sci-fi horrors uh we've watched hammer horror classic starring christopher lee and peter cushion we have visited sort of modern feral vampirism with things like 30 days of night or blood red sky uh, yeah so for, for me it's it's the variation Darren. there's so much not just in terms of the type of creature that you're dealing with but in types of the in terms of the types of film as well because you know you're as likely to get a, a horror comedy with something like uh, what we do in the shadows or you know something like vampire in brooklyn as you are to get something really dark and difficult like let the right one in or a film we just watched recently for the podcast which i'd never seen before and it's absolutely pitch black it's called the transfiguration no oh, i've never seen it honestly i yeah, I'd only heard of it. I'd never actually seen it, but it was a guest that we had on um, who was really keen to talk about that film. So we, you know, that's kind of what we do. When we have a guest on, we ask them for, you know, give me your favourite vampire films and we'll, we'll pick one. And we had uh, Chris Niles on, who is the the owner, actually, of the London Horror Society. It's the first guest we'd had on from that site. So he came on to kind of talk about the transfiguration. And I watched it a couple of days ago. And as I sit here now talking to you, it's still in my brain. It really it, it upset me. It was horrible. Really? It, yeah, it's it's been a long time since I've seen a film where I can genuinely say that that I felt upset by it. There was a point at which I almost felt like this isn't. I, I maybe need to pause this for a minute and just take a breath and leave the room and you know come back to it in half an hour because it's so oppressive and it's um it's a piece that's more about social realism than it is about vampirism. The vampirism is a kind of you know, it's kind of like side on to what's happening. It's set in uh, in Queens, New York, and it's about um, sort of an, an inner city kid who has uh, lost his mum to a drug overdose, and he is struggling with his um, with his ability to sort of maintain a you know a grip on the real world. And he believes whether this is true or not, you'll need to watch the film to find out. But he believes that he's a vampire, and then accordingly decides that he must start drinking blood. But it's a film that's more interested in talking about social, uh, societal issues. It's a film that's really interested in shining a light on the lives of the underprivileged who are kind of living in these boroughs. And it was it was nominated for um, it was nominated for an award at the the Cannes Film Festival in twenty sixteen, and that, that's how I kind of knew the name. But I'd never got around to actually watching the film. And uh, yeah, it it just it really stuck with me. It's horrible, and but horrible in a way that kind of that, that made me think and as I said, a couple of days on, it's still with me. Uh, and I may revisit it at some point, but um, after having seen that film, I won't forget it for a long time. And I won't forget kind of the message that it was sending out and what it was actually saying. Um, and, and again, I don't think there are, there are many other genre films that can do that. I mean, there are, there are lots of brilliant genre films out there, but in terms of like variety, you know, like you never really know exactly what you're going to get from a vampire film, and I and I like that. I like to be surprised. Yes. I like to, I like to come across something that I didn't expect, and and <laughs> that film was certainly that. Um, when we when we got around to, to talking about it on the podcast, it was it was great. It was really it was one of the, it was a lot of our, the podcast is is really fun. We do our best to kind of you know keep things quite light and you know keep it moving along. 
but every now and again we come across an episode or we come across a movie that that kind of merits a bit more you know in-depth discussion about the themes and the transfiguration and i would say let the right one in or two films that we've come across that are just um absolutely astounding pieces of work um really singular voices really interesting in uh, what they were doing and yeah it kind of every every time I, I think about it, it just it reinforces my love for that genre and you know it's like I, 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 that's why i'm excited about getting the podcast out there because i can't wait to kind of share it with people because i think there'll be a lot of films that we cover that people either wouldn't have heard of before or maybe that, see, that's the beauty of podcasts yeah. right there yeah yeah because you you already gave me a few in, in our podcast here that that uh, and that i'm going to watch and then follow mm. up on um and uh, transfiguration now will, will be part of that you know i mentioned that i was sort of like a werewolf guy and then um you know the whole it's very interesting because the whole frankenstein thing never really um impressed me it's again i respected mm. it even as a kid um the zombie thing i liked because um even though it was very predictable in a lot of ways uh though the fast and the slow and but it really if you think, really dig down for me it's uh, it's more a post-op uh you know post what's apocalyptic than it is anything else mm. Um, because like what what's the future hold right and I, I find myself mm-hmm. I'm gonna go back to vampires in a second but I find myself very interested because even as a kid I found the original Planet of the Apes game that was a game changer for me mm. that was the whole Forbidden Zone and, and, and this is what happens uh, and um, I look at something even on, on Netflix recently like Sweet Tooth I won't say it's a mm. horror but what is it you know it's very interesting Black Summer you know, some of these, uh, you know, these other things that that's out there, but believe it or not, in a movie that's been panned, a vampire movie that's been panned, really allowed me to become very interested. Again, I've seen, you know, the old uh, Dracula movies and, and the Boris Koloff and all that, but let me in. Mm-hmm. I just found so compelling and not for the reason of the, of, of, of the romance that was in there. But because my belief, this is just Darren Redman talking, that vampires exist, emotional vampires, certainly, and that, that, that's what I'm talking about. Energy mm. suckers, people that take your energy and just, it, it, because they're all around the world, they're all around us, aren't they? People with the negative mm. energy, they don't wish us well, or, or they just, they want our attention, they want to draw uh, the limited resources that we have in our life away from the things that would help us to help themselves. Uh, and it just gets very interesting, right? You go down that rabbit hole, you know, these succubuses mm. that are out there, you know, that kind of thing, which may yeah, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Very interested in that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, as I said, it's, like, it's, it's the thing that kind of keeps me coming back again and again to the genre. It's just the, you know, you, the type of vampire as well as you said there like you, you never know exactly what you're what you're going to be watching until you get to it unless you, unless of course one of the big famous ones of course um did you see sorry the film there that you're talking about was there let me in is that right the matt reeves movie yes with yeah. chloe uh, whatever her name is yeah yeah so I, i've actually it's funny because the movie i was talking about let the right one in is the swedish film that that, that was based on yes um, that was original. and i've never yeah, I, I've never actually got round to watching the uh, the remake, and it's it's on our list. And we are covering it in the uh, the next block of recordings. We've got a, a guest coming on to have a chat about that film. So, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to you, Darren. Actually, after I've seen it, and let you know what I think because 
I really like Matt Reeves. I think he's a great, uh, I think he's a really great director. Uh, he's always, he's got a really unique eye for things. Um, but, and, and this is one of those films that's like, I think if you are going to remake something like Let the Right One In, you kind of have to have a unique spin on it and your own yes. you know, kind of look. So I'm really excited to watch that. Um, so yeah, I'll come back to you once I've had a look oh, at that. Oh, and there's, there, you're going to see a whole thing on, re, re, you know, reincarnating it. And, and, and it's just, it, it's very interesting and very unique. And I thought very well done. So mm. I, here's a weird question for you. You know, I love hearing about your podcast and I will be listening to it. Um, I grew up, I was already an adult when I kid. Um, <laughs> loving mystery science theater for that reason, because sometimes you take these movies and you just have a good old laugh, you know. And, yeah. And, with that, and you're not disrespecting the movie, you know. You just have exactly. A good laugh. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's because you know you just they had limited budgets and they, you know this is a mm. final take, no matter how this goes, you know. And things are falling <laughs> and the lights. You see the cameras and anyway. Um, I wanted to ask you, here's a question that I'm sure you get all the time. This might be the biggest question in the horror genre ever made. And that is, <laughs> like, like people ask, is Die Hard um, a, a, a Christmas movie? Uh, the same must be asked about uh, the uh, Nadia Lemin, Samantha Lotsley uh, movie called House. Is that a Christmas movie? Hmm. I'm not even sure if I know that movie. Is that terrible? Is that an awful thing? Oh, that's very good. It's it's, it's an independent film. What, came out what? 2019. Hosts, uh, and um, it's really good. Check it out if you get a chance. Um, they you. they both did a very good job in that movie. Um, and um, what, what's it called? Sorry, host. Did you say H O S T S? Correct. Hosts. Wait a minute. Hold on. I want to say I thought I thought you did a review on it. Yes, sorry. I do. I do apologize. I, when you said host, I was thinking. Listen, so, I got the Brooklyn accent. Don't worry about me. Let, yeah, no. Let, let, let me backtrack a second here because you'll, you'll like this. Um, in the same month, I reviewed two films called Host and Hosts. Yes, and that was a real honestly, problem. It, it was, Nobody. Yeah. It was a nightmare trying to keep keep it right because um, not only was I was I um, doing the reviews for the films, I was also interviewing people involved with both uh, both movies. So I, I, first of all, I had uh, Rob Savage from Host on, um, to, and I spoke to him, and then literally two days later, I think I had the two directors, writers, and three of the cast members from Hosts on. So I do apologise. That that kind of skipped my, uh, exactly what when you're talking about. I know exactly the film you mean now. So let let me let me just uh, say, yes, 100% it's a Christmas movie. Thank would you. I sit, yeah, would I sit down and watch it with my, my kids at Christmas? Not quite so sure, but <laughs> it certainly is a Christmas movie. Yes, I agree. And I would say it's much more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. Because it, 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 it just is. It's, it, it, and by the way, and, and I put this out, every Christmas now, the last two Christmases, I watch it, you know, as an homage. Oh, wow. Because wow. it is a Christmas movie. Um, and you know, um, with, without without spoiling anything, Darren, um, th that that scene, you know, without without saying anything, that scene uh, where things start to go wrong, yes. is one of the most bonkers gonzo moments I have ever experienced watching. Oh, and again, I, I didn't even get to see that in a cinema because I, I was going to travel out to London for the premiere at Fright Fest, uh, but well, other commitments came up and I, and I couldn't make it. So um, the the cast and the uh, the directors very kindly agreed to do interviews online so I spoke to them over zoom 
and uh, they sent me a screener of the movie to watch as well. And I remember watching that in the sitting room. And uh, yeah, I think my head almost exploded watching that scene because up until then, it's almost like a, like a kitchen sink drama, you know, yes, where like, yes. you know, it, you know, oh, Christmas is a bit difficult. We've got people coming over or, you know, someone's got an illness that they're dealing with around the holidays. You know, so you've kind of got all this sort of like human stories going on and, and it's, it's, it's pretty well put together. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. And yeah, then about maybe is it maybe 18, 19 minutes into the film, that scene happens at the dinner yes. table and suddenly it just, oh yeah, I, I, it took me a minute to recover from that. It, I don't well, know about me you. Me too, but... I jumped and, and yeah. I don't jump because I, I, look, I, just, I just love heart. And, and, the... but, but I jumped and, and like this way, wow. <laughs> it, and it does that that thing that's, that so few horrors can eat, it can pull off ably, where um, you you get the uh, you know the, the the thing happens, right? And you're right, you get your initial shock where you're kind of like, my goodness, I did not expect that to happen. But then it goes on for so long that same thing that it becomes funny. <laughs> it's like yes. you can't help but laugh because it's so absurd and so grim. Uh, and then again, it goes through that gamut of it goes it goes beyond funny, where it's just back to being horrible again. And then because it keeps going, it, it suddenly it's funny again. It, it's yeah, it's um, it's a film I've recommended to quite a few people just for that very reason. It's like you know you will uh, you will get a kick out of the the, the first twenty minutes of that film. So yeah. Definitely a Christmas movie, though. I'm, I'm backing your play on that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, before we migrate away from uh, the, the zombie uh, realm, I have found, whether it's All of Us or Dead, you know, that, that series, uh, or the movie Alive, mm. there's some amazing the take on the zombie genre out of South Korea just kicks ass. Yes, uh -huh. I mean things like uh, you know Train to Busan as well. Um, yes, just, yes. There's so many interesting things. Have you seen uh, a very recent one um, that was just? I think it was uh, one of the fan, uh, fantastic fests called. Let me think. Oh, the sadness. I did not see that. I, I would recommend it to you, Darren. It's um, it's not for the faint of heart. Is <laughs> all I would say. But again, it's a, it's a zombie film that's got a very unique take on the zombie mythos, but. Um, if you uh, if you don't have a strong stomach, you are going to struggle with it. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting film, very worth uh, watching. And again, another Korean movie because I think uh, the, the zombie genre must be absolutely booming over there. It must be one of their big uh, the big sellers. They do it so well. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it's because we I think we're so used to the um, the slow moving uh, lethargic pace of the the Romero movies, which are absolutely terrific. And you know. And, uh, there's a lot of a lot of really cool and interesting subtext going on beneath the bones of the horror in, in those films. Um, but I think what happened was those films were so successful that like so many American horror uh, movies in the next 30 years would just ape them and do very similar things that yes. just didn't really interest me. And I think you're right. I think like the, the sort of the, the the Korean zombie films have really re-energized the entire industry. Um, and I don't know what your, your thoughts are on uh, The Walking Dead, either the TV show. Do you, have you, do you watch that? Have you kept up with oh, that? Yeah, so here's what I... So you know the term jump the shark, right? Mm, so, yeah. Oh. So I I have to say that... Um, and I've watched everyone and, and every one of the Fear of the Walking Dead and, and then mm -hmm. the, the other one that was done, uh, I forget what it was called. Um, it, that tells you what I thought of it. Um, <laughs> but yet I watched it all and I'm looking forward to mm -hmm. the new ones that are coming out. Um, I just think sometimes, I'll give you a great example, Negan, right? 
the whole mm-hmm. Negan character, I was, I thought um, somebody made a, a decision that I would not make. Isn't that wonderful the way that I made it? Where mm-hmm. I think they actually hurt Negan's character and they hurt the show by putting too much emphasis on him right away. Well, mm-hmm. everybody's going to love him. And, and it took away some of the charm of the interpersonal relationships between what was going on. I thought that was a very critical time where they could have, and they kind of tried to bring it up later in the series, they could have said right right away, wait a minute, we're not the good guys here. We killed Mm. a bunch of people who were sleeping and they're just responding. You know, they're just responding. They're trying to eat too. Um, I think that you could have told that a little different um, than, you know, Negan is this big, ugly, evil monster kind of guy. Uh, and and um, I thought that kind of hurt the show, and it's never recovered. And it has nothing to do with the character nor the acting. Um, and I still watch it; I find it enjoyable. But I almost feel like I watch it now because I, I have eleven years in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Yeah, and so it's, so now it's like, you know, it's those people who are into Star Wars. Like you know, you see that you watch anything that has the word Star Wars on it. Because you hope that it's going to rekindle something that once was. That's yeah. the way I feel about Walking Dead. Yeah, I, I think you and I have a similar mind about that. Um, so I, much like you, I'm a big fan of the early early years. Thought it was terrific. Um, but then I, w- I was a big fan of the comic book as well. So sure. um, you know, it d- didn't take a lot to kind of hook me in once I realised they were going to make a show out of it. And yeah, I just I just feel that. Uh, I haven't watched the, the most recent season, you know, the one that's about to finish airing, mm-hmm. um, but they, they've just dropped it on Disney Plus here in the UK. I, I'm not sure where it is in the States, but um, so they've just dropped on Disney Plus. So when it's finished, I will go back and I'll watch the last season. But I, I think like you, I, at, at that point, I am just watching out of obligation. Yes. And it is because, yeah, like I've sunk 11 years into this show. I'm going to watch these last like 20 episodes or whatever it is, even if I've got no real compunction or enthusiasm for them, I'm going to make sure that I sit down and watch them. Um, yeah, it was was terrific. I agree. Around the Negan point is where it kind of went off the rails, which is a real shame because um, a great character in the comics, and I think Jeffrey Dean Morgan absolutely, uh, like, pardon the expression here, but swing, swings and hits out of the park, oh, you know. Big time. Um, I think it's a t- I think he gave a really terrific performance, but uh, Morgan yeah. is Morgan, he rocks. You know, it's not mm, his yeah, fault. Absolutely. He's just yeah. reading what they're telling him to do. Yeah. But yeah, I think I do think that it kind of it has lost its way quite considerably. But it's nearly done, nearly at an end. That's kind of where I'm looking at it. So yes. I am going to watch it to, to its finish. Yeah. So my question <laughs> to you is I know you're an MCU guy as am, as mm. am I. Um, how do you feel about the state of the universe that is MCU? Oh, uh, I am. You, you, you're going to struggle here because I am a relentless optimist when it comes to the MCU. Um, about, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to just plug another podcast that I'm doing. No, that's please. All right. That's what we do um, here. Um, at, at the moment, I have just been taken on as the new host of a podcast called Podcast Six One Six from the We Need We Made This Network. So the the guy who runs the network, Tony. Um, got in touch with me and you know I kinda, that's where vampire videos is ultimately going to appear on that network as well and he knows I'm a big fan he'd heard me on a few pods he quite liked what was there and 
kind of you know together we decided right i'm going to we're going to reboot podcast 616 we want new hosts and we're going to dive in so uh last week in fact me and my new co-host um ashley thomas who is on twitter at the nerdy blogger she is a terrific writer uh the wonderful co-host so together we've kind of relaunched this marvel podcast and the most recent one that we did was actually a sort of um we looked at the comic-con news that came out a couple of weeks ago uh, where mm. kevin feige kind of announced what the next three years was going to look like so we kind of went in depth there let on it with our thoughts on the uh, the current state of the marvel universe but i'll give you my my kind of my uh my uh, limited thoughts because I don't want to have you here for the next six hours listening to me rabbit on about how much I love Marvel because nobody needs that but um, I don't think things are quite as dire as some would have you believe I think over the last eight or nine years I've heard people tell me that the superhero um, uh, boom is about to go bust and I, I you know the, I think people will still be telling me that 10 years from now uh, yes, as Marvel continue to yeah as, as Marvel continue to to release hit after hit after hit I think Phase Four, which is you know, which begun with uh, what was the first movie? Was it Shang Chi or Black Widow? Black Widow was the first movie uh, in Phase Four. I think it has been a little bit messy, um, yes. but I do think what I like about Phase Four is Marvel have taken some risks that they really didn't need to take. I mean, when you when you've got filmmaking down to a kind of like. I mean, I know it is a bit assembly line at points, you know, where the kind of everything has a, a sort of homogeneity to it. Well, whilst there are still moments and there are still, um, there are still films that stand out as different and there are still moments that are, you know, amazing, amazing and, you know, paying off work that's going in over eight and then years to build story beats. There is a homogeneity about them where, you know, there's a lot of similarity between the projects. So then phase four comes along and they give Sam Raimi uh, a Marvel film, you know, and whatever you may think of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, it's most definitely a Sam Raimi movie first. I mean, I, I enjoyed, I, by the way, for the record, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. That was me. As did I. Yeah, that, that that's actually been my favourite of the Phase Four movies. As much as I love the Spider-Man movie, uh, No Way Home, which I think is terrific fun, um, I think you can feel Sam Raimi's hands all over Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and I love that because it's been far too long since we've had a Sam Raimi movie. And I was just delighted to see that he was taking on a big project like this again. I also love some of the, the interviews at the time when he was asked why he was doing it. And he effectively said, well, you know, it's been about uh, 15 years since, or 12, 13 years since I've done a superhero movie. I just wanted to see if I could still do it. It's like, right. excellent, excellent, Sam. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, um, I don't think things are quite as uh, off kilter as a lot of uh, pop culture sites would, would have you believe. But I do think that Marvel have been feeling that that is kind of the public consensus, which is why Comic-Con a couple of weeks ago, they announced, you know, their entire slate pretty much for the next couple of years. And again, as a huge comics, uh, comic book geek and fan of, of, uh, of those stories, the fact that they're about to delve into the sort of secret wars uh, is so exciting uh, as, as, a, as, yeah, as, as a long-term fan of the MCU and as a long-term fan of Marvel in general, tackling secret wars is so exciting. Um, the, the thing I'm waiting for, I think the thing that's going to be key to all of this is seeing who they, they peg as the director for that movie because they just announced, I think, is it Dan, um, Dustin Daniel Cretton, uh, who did Shang-Chi, is going to do Avengers, The Kang Dynasty, um, which I think is a great choice. I think Shang-Chi is a beautiful too. movie. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's getting away from the sort of um, the fact that, like, all of the Marvel films seem to be made by the same sort of people. So it's great to see a new, a new name in there. And I don't, I don't know what you think, Darren. I reckon 
whoever comes on board to direct the Fantastic Four movie. Which That's, still have, thank you. You, you, yeah, you just I, got in my head. Yeah, I think whoever comes for, uh, comes to direct that will be the person that will direct Secret Wars because I think the Fantastic Four, I mean, if, if you're familiar with the comics, they are intrinsically linked to the events in Secret Wars. And so it just it makes perfect sense that you get a big director in to, to pick up both of those films. So Fantastic Four starts off phase six and then it will also end phase six with uh, with Secret Wars. So that, that's kind of what I think. What do you think? Well, here, here's what I, I think. And, and again, I'll show my age. <laughs> I grew up, you know, there were DC kids and Marvel kids. And, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was a Marvel kid. Uh, DC never made any sense to me because even as a child, I never understood, you know, Gotham City or Metropolis. Just say New York, that's what you mean, you know? And I like the reality piece that was mixed with fantasy. And um, this is way before I got into J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. You know, like I like the mix of, of uh, you know, reality with fantasy. And my first love was the Fantastic Four. And, oh, and people, oh, wow. don't, people don't realize, you know, they were originally Korean War veterans. I mean, right? Mm. When the first one came out in 62, 63. And you had the first appearance of the Silver Surfer was, in, was with the Fantastic Four. And I was a big thing guy. I just, you know, and, uh-huh. and Jack Kirby and the beautiful writing and, 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 and drawings. So my hope is these horrific renditions of the Fantastic Four uh, that have been done <laughs> in the past. You know, like I pretend they don't exist. And um, my hope is that they, they finally can get one right and go into, you know, into Secret Wars. Yeah. Um, you know, that's my I- hope. I, was, uh, I just want to mention something about the Black Widow. Mm. Black Widow for me was doomed for failure because I thought um, I know that I know the pandemic kind of ruined it. Uh, one piece because I thought it kind of like waited too long that we wanted to see this prequel before she died, you know, yeah. in, in the latest Avengers. I thought the character, and again, you know, God bless anybody who makes a movie. I thought the character of her father was just not really done well it was almost like oh here he is time to make time to laugh like yeah, what, yeah. what's funny is when you don't expect something to be funny and it's funny with him halfway through the movie you know he's just going to say something or do something that's you know going to uh, laugh on three two one laugh <laughs> i thought that actually hurt the whole movie that's my problem yeah, no, I, I, again, I, would, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, it, it, I, I like David Harbour. He's a very interesting actor. And it's, it's nice yes. he's getting a bit of, uh, you know, he's getting some of that that sort of uh, Marvel uh, love, which, which you know, he definitely deserves. But I agree. There's, you know, I, but I think that is one of Marvel's um, pitfalls, maybe the best way of putting it. I think sometimes the, the humour undercuts, the, 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 undercuts the, the moments a bit too often not always the case again i know it's kind of a stick that people use to beat the the entire mcu with and i don't necessarily always agree but i think you're spot on in that i think uh, i think is it, is it red guardian i think he is yeah i think he's he's too broad for the emotional beats to land um yes, yes. and i kind of if, if i'm honest with you i felt the same way about most of the most recent thor movie me too uh, oh Thunder. thank you what yeah I, no, I, again i came out with that film and like I came out with my with my kids and my daughter absolutely loved them. And she said, what did you think? And I said, well, I'm, I'm coming out with a smile on my face because I, I, I laughed my way through. There was a lot of interest and funny things through it. 
but yeah, I'm, I was disappointed because I was expecting a lot more. I think Ragnarok got that mix a little bit better. Um, and, I, and I think that there's a, there's a fundamental flaw in Taika Waititi's style when it comes to the, the most recent film. Um, but yeah, it's, like I said, I feel that's, for me, that's really been the only big misstep in phase four has been the Thor movie, which is crazy to think about because I thought that was the absolute banker. I thought that's the one you don't have to worry about, you know, a Thor movie directed by the director of, you know, one of the most popular films in the franchise, you know, you're, you're absolutely onto a winner there. But it turns out that's the one that was a bit of a miss for me. Well, me and, too. I mean, you get the people from Guardians of the Galaxy, and and, mm-hmm. and you think it's going to just be a lay down of fun summer movie. And the, those guys from the Guardians of the Galaxy, they came in. It was like they were on, they want a train, and they just stopped <laughs> by for you know four seconds. And right then, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, th- that <laughs> this was just a cameo, and it, it just felt to me. The first, the f- go yeah, go ahead. No, it felt no, to no, me no, like no, no. People just cashing a check. You know, yeah, 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 exactly. I enjoyed well, it. But I was like, we've set the standard too high. This does not hit what you've done in the past. This was yeah. a Wednesday at work. This was just, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, I mean, it's, it's so disappointing as well because the, the Thor arcs that they were kind of covering in those films with Gore, the God Butcher, and uh, the Mighty Thor um, are, are some of the, the best modern, yes. uh, modern Thor story arcs that there's been. I mean, I, I'm actually... Funny, we should be talking about this. Today. I'm I'm in the midst of a, a reread on uh, Marvel Unlimited of the, of that very run, and uh, it's it's just striking how good it is. I, that's effectively when I came out of Thor: Love and Thunder. That's what happened. I decided, do you know what? I was so disappointed with that. I want to go back and enjoy Thor for a while. So I'm going to go back and read that run. So yeah, I'm about halfway through at the moment. It's really really good. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the final thing to say about Marvel, Darren, as we said, like you know, the, the idea that you know they're running out of steam, and you know, or, you know, some of the films haven't been quite as big as you would like. When I whenever I talk to anyone about this who's hyper critical of it, I always just say, well, look what Marvel built with their B list characters. You know, they yep. had Thor, Iron Man, Captain America. Um, they didn't even have the full rights to Hulk um, and they created the Avengers, which was, you know, one of the biggest films ever made. Yes. And then all, all they've done now is, is add to that with the roster. And I'll tell you, you know, if, if people think the Avengers was big, just wait till we get to the MCU's version of the X-Men, which I oh, think I is going to be. Oh. Yeah. Um, I, I think the X-Men is going to be even bigger. Uh, than the Avengers movies because you're going to get all the buzz for like a, a good year or two about who's being cast as who, yep. uh, you know. So you, it's an opportunity to bring in some big names you know, who haven't been part of the the show before, and then you spend a couple of years building up those X Men movies, and then once you've got that going, you start intri- you can do crossovers with Avengers and yep. yeah. The, the, anybody who thinks that this is on the wing or that they're running out of ideas oh, has never crazy. picked up a Marvel comic book. Yeah, it's no, like you know, crazy. By the way, you, you you just touched on something because you can just alone do properly Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Dark Phoenix and all that, you know, because mm. X-Men was my number two. And X-Men was, you probably know this, X-Men was made as a follow-up to Fantastic Four because it's, mm, yeah, let's yeah, come yeah. up with mm. something else. And that's why, you know, you had the Human Torch and you had Iceman. You know, they just... Yeah. They, so they, they mirrored each other. Invisible Girl, you know, very similar to, to um, what Marvel Girl was, who later became Phoenix. So mm. I'm interested in that. I'd like to see more stuff with um, um, The Watcher. I'd love to see the stuff with, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, with, with Dr. Doom done right. 
There's so much there. Before I let you go, we, we as I mentioned, I want to mm. talk a little bit about football. And again, I think oh, yeah, sure. when this happened. Um, and that is the women's team for England. Mm. Are they as, uh, is, is, is the people over there as impressed as uh, we are here with that team? Well, this is a, an interesting one speaking to, to someone from Scotland because yes. um, obviously there's a massive rivalry between England and Scotland when it comes to That's football. actually why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't really, it hasn't really kind of happened for us in terms of our national team. Like our, our women's team, you know, they're, they're, they're fine. They, they just, they haven't kind of hit the highs of the England team. And yeah, from what I understand, because I've got a lot of family down south, uh, and in fact, uh, my partner was just in London uh, while this was all going on for um, the, a week for the weekend to see the uh, the ABBA show down there. And yeah, they, they said that London is just absolutely throbbing with joy over that uh, over that performance. And, you know, for, for the women's game to be able to get as many eyes on it as it's getting due to this, especially in the UK, I think is brilliant um, because there's been a real push in the last maybe five years or so um, for big clubs in Scotland and England to kind of professionalise their women's team because, I mean, just from a, a nuts and bolts uh, point of view, Darren, financially, it's worth a lot of money to these clubs to have oh, successful uh, female teams. So and the, the launch of, or, or rather the... Um, the restructuring of the Champions League for club uh, for club teams in Europe as well, female club teams, has meant that a lot of clubs have moved to a professional model. And similar, like my uh, my team is Glasgow Rangers, and in the last year they have pumped in a phenomenal amount of cash to the women's side to completely uh, change the the style of players that we bring in, the level of players that we bring in. They've moved to playing professional matches in front of big crowds, and um, it's been great to see. They, they won the Scottish League last year, so they go into the, the nice. European Champions League next season. So it's all very exciting. And yeah, I mean, like the, uh, the 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 Lionesses and what they've done has been absolutely spectacular. I mean, you, you would have to... Oh, you'd have to be so miserable not to take any joy in what they've done, you know. And those right. women have worked so hard to get where they are, uh, and I would I would argue much harder than the men have to work just in terms of getting eyes on the pro uh, on the product. And a lot of those women were are still like, working other jobs as well in between uh, training. You know, oh, it's absolutely. only recently that, that a lot of them have gone full time professional. So yeah, no, it was a it was a bit of a phenomena over here, and I think it caught a lot of people off guard because there wasn't really a lot of I mean, I'm sure there was promotion, right? But it, it wasn't so strong that it was kind of breaking through uh, to me because I wasn't even really that aware that the Euros were about to begin until I kind of stumbled across it on TV. And right. it's like, crikey, how, how did I not see this? Because I'm, I mean, I, I'm very active when it comes to like, following my football club. And you think that, you know, it'd be a bit better promoted, but yeah, it just didn't really, didn't really happen all that well. But there's a huge word of mouth and it built really quickly and really strongly. Uh, and suddenly, you know, they had massive viewing figures in the UK for all their games. And uh, yeah, I, I watched the final and it was absolutely thrilling. It was great to see them win. And again, that's coming from a Scotsman, you know, who's meant to be meant to be no, listen, diametrically opposed listen, to, my, to English. My, my dad was a dual citizen from Ireland, so I get it. Mm. <laughs> you know, he, he's yeah, saying yeah, a lot yeah. the same thing you are. Um, so here's, here's one last question I got about, about yeah. uh, football. Um so here in the states, mm -hmm. they don't understand. I mean, they have a under, who are not football fans, and we have more and more people growing into the sport. And I, I just love the sport. I grew up mm -hmm. I'm, again older than you. 
I grew up uh, watching the Cosmos that had Pele, Franz Beckenbauer, oh, cool, cool. Giorgio Canalia, <laughs> Edel Yassin. So, I mean, and I had season mm. tickets. And so I got to watch some, even though they were older, some really high-level um, uh, soccer yeah. football. And I remember talking to Alexi Lawless on my podcast. And he said, listen, Darren, you're never going to see that again. That, you know, that kind of all-star <laughs> team, you know. And I remember how strong the Scottish team was. And, uh, you know, Ireland. And mm. just on the world stage, we're not competing as much as we used to, in my opinion. So it's a two-part question. One is, why do you think that is? I mean, of course, competition. Um, and, and going to the higher dollar. Uh, two, my, my question is, um, it's going to be a three-part question, actually. Two is, how can we change that? Uh, and, uh, three, and, and the differences between, um, because here in America, we get a lot of, in these, minor, these, these lesser leagues like US, USL and, and some of these, the MSL, you get you know, sort of people later in life from all different parts, and you hear the different kind of philosophy of the South American player to the European player, you know, some like to go ground, some like to punch it up in the air. Um, mm. So like, what would you say is the difference between the two? And here, here's my, what's going to be my original question is regulation. I love regulation because you can't just tank a season because you can get regulated. Explain to my, our listeners here, uh, you know, in America, the damage that could be done to a city to a community, to a fan base, if you get regulated. And uh, I remember when that happened to the Queen's Park Rangers not too long ago. Um, so, what do we think the best way? So, yeah, it, it's, we'll start with the, the idea of sort of, um, of being relegated and what, what that can kind of mean and you know what what it kind of it, it can kind of do so what what i'll do if you don't if you don't mind that i'll talk about my own team because that's the one i kind of get the most no, please, uh, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, this year uh glasgow rangers celebrate their 150th anniversary um and you know we we are we proudly kind of market ourselves as being uh the most successful club in the world and the kind of the, the way we market that is through um professional cup wins and league wins you know so i think I think there are one or two other teams that kind of dispute that, but we're, we're kind of near the top in terms of like professional trophies won by a single club. So that's kind of how we market things. Now, about in fact, in 2012, we suffered a catastrophic financial crisis um, that, that that caused the PLC that run our club to be liquidated. So effectively, we were sent to the bottom league in Scotland, down to the, the third division in Scotland, and effectively told you just need to work your way back up. Now. We were we contacted UEFA and FIFA, who are the governing bodies of, of football in Europe and world football. And effectively what happened was we transferred all of the, the old companies, like you know, the previous trophy wins are onto a new company. And, but effectively we're starting from the bottom. So we still have our history intact, we still have everything we did, but we were told you need to start at the bottom and work your way up. So it was I, I met as a supporter, it was devastating. Sure. And we spent, I mean, we, we won the league title uh, in not not this season, the season before we won the league title. And it's the first time we'd won it in 10 years. And um, we stopped our great rivals across the city, Glasgow Celtic, from winning 10 league titles in a row. So that was a momentous moment for, for the football club uh, because 10 league titles in a row would have been a world record for them. And so, you know, everything was geared to making sure our nearest rivals didn't do that. Of course. How, however, the, the damage that that did 
to the psyche of the support in Glasgow, which is sizable. I mean, you're, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not, if not more than that. You know, across the world, you are talking maybe millions, but hundreds of thousands of people in Glasgow having to deal with this horrible realization that this thing that they follow every week for the longest time almost looked like it might just disappear forever. You know, there was a real worry that the club would just you know go out of business and that was the end of things. And so there's been what what it has done is it created this immense amount of unity in the support, um, you know, it, which has never existed before. There, there's a, a famous line about Glasgow Rangers supporters that if um, three Glasgow Rangers supporters washed up on a desert island, there would be three separate supporters associations founded by the end of the week because we just <laughs> constantly argue and fight and bicker amongst ourselves. But I think that's a football fan thing in general. But sure. what that's happens also the charm, by the way. Yes, exactly. But what happened to us absolutely unified the support like never before. And the people who had taken over the club were exploiting the support of us, but exploiting uh, the resources of the club. And through fan intervention, we effected change. We removed the board that were in charge by, uh, you know, by boycotting games and withholding money. And we eventually managed to get people in who had the club at their hearts and had money to spend, you know, who were happy to kind of spend club uh, money to get the club back to where it was. And it's it's hard to kind of under, uh, understate what that did to the city because, I mean, Rangers and Celtic, I'm not sure how much you're aware of the history there, and we don't, I'm sure. sure we don't have time to go into too in-depth, but Rangers and Celtic are horrendously bitter rivals. It comes from a really horrible sectarian origin, you know, about Catholics and Protestants oh, that, that that goes back hundreds of years. Yes. Um, in, the, in the media, the current landscape, it's kind of portrayed as still being quite horrible and sectarian. It's nowhere near as bad as people would have, you believe. I mean, there's still a lot of the sort of like, Old, older people who can have those bigoted attitudes but you know most I've got like lots of friends who are Celtic supporters you know we, we, we go on very well you know there's right. the, not to each other's throat, it's, a, each it's other's a heated throat. rivalry now Nobody's yeah dying. yeah yeah when, when there's when the game's on you know like we'll send messages to each other to wind each other up but it's, it, it is fun but right. there is there was a lot of anger and Ever since that happened, I mean, it's really it stoked up a lot of old bitterness and uh, rivalries on both sides of the divide, and it's been really it's created a lot of problems in Glasgow. It's it, it sparked a lot of um, you know, there's been a lot of support of violence over the last maybe five or six years. It kind of increased year on year, and then you've got things like social media, which don't help you because you oh, just it get makes a derby into just a. <laughs> Time yeah, deal. you get lunatics on both sides, you know, sure. absolutely losing their minds. So yeah, I mean, yeah, rele- relegation is just one of those things. It's it, it's 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 really damaging to uh, to an entire city, and, and the fact that we had to go down to the very bottom and work our way back up, in particular, I found um, very hard to take. It took us it took us nine years effectively to get back to where we were, and you know, I, I've been a supporter my entire life, and. I'm used to Rangers winning trophies every year. You know? I'm used to us winning the league. Um, Rangers and Celtic effectively have a, a monopoly on the league. It's like one year they'll win it, one year we'll win it, just kind of back and forth. But I was always used to winning things. And then we, we suddenly, you've got nothing. You know, you're back down at the bottom. You need to work your way back up. But yeah, so whilst it's, it's difficult and it's hard to explain to people who aren't in the trenches and don't and don't feel it, you know, it, it was, it was uh, emotionally devastating. I mean, I remember there was people... I mean, I had friends who were heartbroken, and so so was I. Like, well, this was going on, and and that's why I'll never take my football club for granted again because I've been there, I've been to the bottom, and I almost lost them forever. And so I'll never ever take it for granted again. 
And yeah, so and and just moving on to what you're saying about in terms of um, national teams and, and how they compete, I, I think a lot of the problem. I, I don't know what it's like in in the US, Darren, but for us, a lot of the problem is there's no real focus on our national team. We're more interested in our club sides. So yeah. and and almost like when there's an international break, um, for the you know we send our players off to various squads throughout the world. There's almost like uh, the fans are almost irritated by it rather than looking forward to it. It's like, oh, oh God, we need to stop for a couple of weeks where we play these stupid international games. So I think that's where a lot of it goes as well. I, I think I, a lot I of people love are disappointed. hearing that from you because that's what I think as yeah, well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny just in terms of uh, in terms of US talent. I mean, at Glasgow Rangers, we are incredibly blessed to have two incredibly talented US players in our squad. So we have uh, James Sands, who has just signed for us. He's you know, a really great defender. I think he's got maybe five or six caps for the US. And uh, the the boy that we just signed from Bayern Munich uh, earlier this season, uh, Tillman, he looks like a special talent. Every yes. time I've seen him so far this season, I am so excited. So we have got him from Bayern Munich on loan for a season, but it's one of those loans where there's an option to buy at option the end. So like, yeah, so if, if he impresses, and I've only seen him play three times, but so far he's been my man of the match in each game. So um, yeah, I, Let me tell you a little I, Bayern Munich story real quick. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. We, so my daughter had played football for years from the oh, time wow. she was six until she went to college. Uh-huh. And she played competitively here in California. And I bring all that up because for a large part of that time, her individual coach and her team coach, same person, was just this child of Bayern Munich. Uh-huh. Born in Germany, you know, came over here. They were the greatest thing since sliced bread. Practices had to stop. The girls had to do things. So it's very interesting you mentioned Bayern Munich. And then, of course, all the girls... <laughs> the team and they played very well they all grew up to be munich fans you know um mm. and uh, you know and then they learned that, that there are other very good teams out there <laughs> but, i'm sorry i just had to share that with you, when you no no not at all no i mean munich are, are like a, a proper like a dynasty in world football aren't they it's like they've been you know at the top of the game for so long and they're always in the conversation when it comes to European trophies. They're always there or thereabouts. Um, yeah, one of, one of the true sort of like legendary clubs in world football. And I hear, I mean, here's a question I didn't ask you. Um, you know, I mentioned about ground game and, and, and games in the air. Mm. What do you think about, and then I'm going to have to go wrap this up. I, but what do you think about here in, here in the States, you no longer can head the ball until you're about 13. Hmm. They, they've actually introduced the exact same law in Scotland about a month ago. It's funny you should say that, Darren. Um, I think it's absolutely correct. Um, the, so when when they initially announced that, that, that they were doing it, there was a lot of pushback from sort of the older generation. Um, you're always met with the same sort of belligerent, oh, it didn't do me any harm, so I, I don't understand why we're banning it. But there has been so many studies into the damage done to footballers um, yes. later in life due to uh, head injuries and I mean, I played football, uh, obviously not professionally, but at a much lower level uh, at school and uh, at college, and, you know, and for years, you know, heading the ball and you don't think anything of it, but you only have to look at some of the players who have passed on in, in yes. recent years. And there is um, there's a prominent Scottish football pundit who, a guy called Chris Sutton, who 
generally not a fan of because he's, he's an ex-Celtic player right, and so, he's he's like a big a big Celtic supporter in the press, right? So this is me. So no good. My, so no exactly. good. <laughs> so this is this is me putting on my neutral hat for a moment. However, he, he has done some brilliant campaigning on this issue because his dad was a professional footballer and I think his dad suffered from really horrendous dementia later in life that he links back to uh, to the you know the amount of times that he headed that ball. So yeah, no, I, I think it's absolutely the right move. And I think also it encourages a, a sort of level of technical proficiency yes. that, you know, that I think will, will benefit these lads. It, we don't want the ball constantly. I mean, it's it's a, a legitimate way of attacking if you're crossing the ball into the box to try and score a goal. I get that. But that's a small part of the game. And when you're that young, you don't need to be worrying about that. That's something that can come as you get older. You should be focusing on your ground game. You want to work on your ball control. So, no, I, I really don't have a problem with it. I mean, what, what, what's your stance on it? So, here, so I'm sort of, you know, I played college football. I bring that and I coach Division One collegiate softball. And mm-hmm. I bring that up because I try to wear a couple of hats when it comes to it. My thought was more of a happy medium. And that was mm-hmm. this. You cannot do it in a game. You cannot do it in a friendly. You can't do it in a scrimmage. But I think that there is a important understanding of teaching in a practice way that's not a scrimmage of the proper way to do it. Um, mm. Because I also think waiting until somebody's 13 or 14 to then teach them how to do it um, has its own problems as well. Um, so... But as a general rule, I'm all for it. Also, yeah. you mentioned about a more competitive game. Um, it's interesting here. Some leagues now do not allow the keeper to uh, kick the ball out. They have to throw it out because it mm-hmm. creates more play. So you don't have that one woman, you know, kicking half the pitch. Um, <laughs> it makes them throw and it makes more touches on the ball. One of the interesting changes that they made to uh, European football laws in the last maybe no more than five years ago, I think, is the rule that the defender can now be in the box when the goalkeeper kicks the ball. So it used oh, to be, wow. so it used to be if you if you the goalkeeper was taking a kick, a goal kick, and um, nobody could be in the box, and the goalkeeper Correct. could then pass it out of the box or he could kick it high, whatever he wanted to do. But they've changed the rule now to allow the defend or, or the actual defenders to come into the box while the goalkeeper's getting ready to take the kick. Now, the, the attacker can't come into the box, but the defender right. can. And what it means is, and this is something uh, I'm aware of it keenly because Rangers have kind of exploited it tactically in the last couple of seasons. It's been a focus for us where the defenders that we've now purchased, our centre-backs, we have a focus on ball-playing centre-backs. So it's no longer good enough to be kind of a big, burly defender who's hard to get past and is good in the air. We want someone as well who, if you pass him the ball on the six-yard line, he's going to be able to ping like a a forty-yard pass to your winger, or right. you know. So, so it really has changed a lot of the way in which um, football's built up because it used to be, as I'm sure you're aware, like whenever there's a goal kick, everyone goes up the pitch and the goalkeeper hits it as hard as far as he can. Whereas now, very rarely do Rangers kick off like that anymore. Almost always, we have someone in the box ready to take the ball. And take it twenty yards up the field before passing it on, and yeah, it's it's created that it's created a real difference in the style of play, and it does encourage a more um, a more technically minded style of football as well. You know, it's it, it's it's funny because when um, my daughter was about 14, 13 mm-hmm. or fourteen, this isn't one of these rah rah dad moments, but it kind of ties on what we're talking about. Um, there was about a minute and a half left. They're playing against Team Alaska, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and uh, they're playing in Las Vegas. And um, she took um, 
from close to half pitch, uh, she took took a free kick and it hit the goalpost and then got headed in for the game that, for for the tie, which was just amazing. And and I tell her now that that would have never happened, you know, <laughs> under today's <laughs> to this. But but back to it, you know, like it's very safety first uh, as a football player. You know, American football. I mm. see way too many people that I played with who are just, you know, in their mid fifties and they have dementia already. It's it's, just a, it's a real thing. Um, yeah, no, it's it's heartbreaking. It really is. And and oddly enough, circling back to to what we started talking about, <laughs> brought us in uh, professional wrestling is the thing that kind of brought my uh, my attention to this issue in the first instance, where um, you know the amount of unprotected shots to the head these guys were taking with like steel chairs and you know the, the amount of concussions that they were receiving that they just kept on wrestling through that really opened my eyes to the kind of damage that gets done to someone just through you know something as simple as heading a football oh, uh, and obviously yeah the, the 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 wwe made a lot of changes about 10 years ago didn't they to the way in which they allow their performers to to wrestle they they removed certain moves that that created a high risk of uh, of head injury and I mean that that's kind of to be uh, to be applauded to, as, as scuzzy a business as pro wrestling is. Um, I think that's quite that's to be applauded. No, so yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I just think um, anything we can do to kind of mitigate that kind of damage is, is probably a good thing. And and as I said, I, I do think it encourages a certain a certain style of football, a certain style of training that's maybe beneficial in the long run. Listen, I played my collegiate football in the mid eighties. And, I, and that's not that long ago, though it feels that way. And I remember mm. being told by my coaches, this is college football now. You know, you, you, your head is your gun sight. Lead with your head and hit him with the crown of your helmet. Mm. Boy, have times changed, right? It's, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> but you tell me that, and, and I almost don't bat an eyelid because um, similarly, when I used to play uh, football, <laughs> I was a, I was a midfielder and I was very right. much encouraged. Like I was the I was this the guy in the middle of the park, and I always remember my coach just telling me like you know you just uh you just win the ball back however you need yes. to win the ball back. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I can't I can't imagine anybody giving uh, a school kid that advice today. You know it's like yeah just uh, just crunch in see see the the little number eight yeah if you just crunch into him as hard as you can on the first challenge that'd be great just do that that's right because he's not going to come back the rest of the match exactly exactly we have changed we have changed oh absolutely um hugh mcstay thank you so much for being my guest today and i made a new friend today and his name's hugh mcstay and uh wow no thank you darren yeah, no, listen, it's absolutely flown by. I've had uh, a terrific time. It's always great. It's always nice talking about writing. I, I love chatting about horror and writing and all, all those sorts of things, but it was really cool to kind of get to know you a bit better as well. So listen, thank you so much for having me on. And listen, one more time, plug, please, both of your podcasts. Let people know what they're called. Oh, yeah, terrific. Thank you, yeah. Um, so uh, coming on, I think the 29th of August will be the launch date for Vampire Videos. Uh, me and my co-host, Dan Owen, uh, are going to be looking back at 100 years of vampire cinema, uh, kind of digging into modern classics. Uh, we actually start off with Nosferatu, the very first oh, yes, uh, the best. vampire movie. Yeah, well, I mean, this year's 100 years anniversary of that film being made, so we kind of... We thought this was the perfect time to kind of launch the podcast so yeah check us out you can find us on twitter at vamp videos so please do that and the other project i've got just now that i've just started is um podcast 616 
which again you can find uh, on Twitter at Podcast 616 where uh, me and my co-host Ashley will talk about all things Marvel. We're going to be covering She-Hulk in detail week to week and uh, we're going to do a monthly news show where we kind of recap all the new Marvel news and kind of get into the weeds about uh, what we think is going to be happening in the MCU. So that's a lot of fun. And finally, if anyone wants to follow me and look at my writing and maybe check out some of my short stories or even, you know, my, my critical work, uh, just follow me on Twitter at, human, so at Angry Scotsman. The Angry Scotsman, the Angry Scotsman, he's back. <laughs> and you can check me out there. You'll find links there. I'm about to, I'm going to be updating my bio in the next couple of days. So I'll have links to everything. And yeah. Please check me out. Let me know what you think. Oh, I'm always here. If anyone wants to talk horror, just uh, send me a, a message, and I'm, I'm always up for a chat about horror. Thank you, my friend. Have a great one. What a great time I just had. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.